Gentlemen, welcome to the Be The Man podcast. I'm your host, Greg Denning. I am the creator and coach inside the Be The Man Masterclass and Tribe. Today, we are honored to have as guest Robert Breedlove. He is known as the Bitcoin philosopher. And man, he is a deep thinker, very well read, and has a cool life and a cool story. And we get into that. So we're going to get into uh, his ideas and, and the idea of really around what money is and how it's affecting our lives and our lifestyles. And, and essentially, everything we do in life is deeply affected by our relationship to money and how Bitcoin can totally transform that. And he's going to share in in here his very unique philosophy and strategy for wealth creation and investment. You do not want to miss that one. But we also dive into life, principles and practices, the things that are working for him as a man and a husband and a father and an athlete and what he's doing on a daily. Some great book recommendations you're going to want to write down. And just this this whole... The whole picture, right, of being a man, being a husband, being a father, being a businessman, being a leader, and where we fit into all that and those those practices both personally and professionally. So buckle up, gentlemen, if you're in a place where you can write down some notes, have a place to do this. And as always, if uh, you know this, this episode adds some value to your life and you like it, you, know, you can go and, and rate it, leave a comment and rating up to five stars. And share it with friends, family, and colleagues. And you can take a screenshot of it, share it on social, and be sure to connect with Robert and uh, share you know the things that that you like about what he's doing and teaching, and and engage with him, especially on Twitter, is where he's primarily at. But he's also on Instagram and other sources. So, gentlemen, without further ado, jump in. You're gonna love this episode. Here we go. All right, man, I've been looking forward to this, this, uh, actually Robert and I met in Birmingham, Alabama at a conference and I've That's been looking right. forward to this for a couple of months. So appreciate you being here, man. Now, was it a conference or was it? It was Jordan was Peterson. That, Jordan oh, Peterson Jordan Peterson speaking event. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It was awesome. Yeah. So we ended yeah. up standing in line and got to, got to connect. It was, it was a super cool event and a night, cool experience. But man, uh, the, as I've, as I've, and I had, I had connected seen you online before we even met mm. and just watching what you're doing and, and watching your messages, your interviews, your videos, you, you come across like a man on a mission. Mm. Uh, so why don't you give it, give us a little bit of your background and kind of tell us like, what's, what's your big pursuit here? What's your message? Yeah. I mean, I, I think mo- that's kind of like the masculine energy, right? The masculine energy tends to be most fulfilled or satisfied when it's on a mission. And I guess we're all, you know, more or less <clears throat> wired that way. I, my mission has changed over the years, but I think where I've kind of settled into now in my adult life is I have this path that I've had a pretty good education on um, economics and money. You know, I have like a master's degree in accounting and finance. So I was sort of geared that direction. Um, prior to that, I had a really just a really deeply curious person. And my mom had sort of beat me over the head that education was the answer to every problem. And so I started reading a lot when I, around the age 10, 11, 12, 13, I was reading just a lot, trying to just satisfy my curiosity. So I think with that kind of like broad scope on the world, like a philosophical, people call me like the Bitcoin philosopher and all of this is like, I just have this philosophical inclination. I just want to know 
you know, all, I want to ask why all the way to the bottom to really get my head around it. And then that sort of channeled into this economics, finance, accounting domain through my, my actual university education. And then my career, you know, I was mostly a finance chief focused in, in technology. And I, the other piece of this is I grew up with computers and, and all of that. I'm an old millennial. I'm 36. I think the cutoff is 38 probably so right right in that window yeah i'm like an old tech semi tech savvy millennial i guess you would say and um you know today i i guess all of that has equipped me to hopefully help add value to the world by throwing light on what i think is the biggest problem in the world which is the corruption of money um now you could also say that you could call that biggest problem central banking you could call it fiat currency, call it uh, legal monopoly on on money. Um, and at the bottom of this problem really is just a lack of freedom, right? It's taking away people's choice. It's you will use this form of money or else, right? Or we throw you in jail or we fine you or we hurt you or whatever it is. And <clears throat> that may sound, I guess, kind of abstract to some extent, but when you really start to drill into money, and how important it is. Like we live in this symbiosis with money in a lot of ways, right? It actually influences the way we think, um, influences our perceptions on the world. Like we're constantly negotiating and thinking through prices. Um, it's obviously a very significant component of someone's socioeconomic status, right? How you fit into the world, what what job are you doing? You, you you go and do your job, by the way, you spend most of your life at work. Well, what is that? That's in pursuit of money, right? You're pursuing money, hopefully in a way that adds value to the world and then lets you capture some for yourself and your family. So it's a real problem, let's say, much more than just a financial problem or economic problem when the character of our monetary implementation is not sound, it's corrupt, it's... uh premised on force rather than discovery. And so I'm hoping, you know, I guess to try and put my mission simply, it's really just to get help people to look at what is looking. And this is a very meta maneuver because again, you're looking, we're looking through money all the time. You could think you could analogize this to a pair of glasses but very rarely do we take off the glasses and examine what is money, right? What is, what are we actually looking at the world through? And um, I hope by drawing people's attention to what I consider to be like the layer one of human civilization, which is money, right? that you'll gain a deeper understanding and appreciation of how everything else works, including your own psychology, including the psychology of others. Um, and I think, you know, the subtle or not so subtle Trojan horse thing here is like, well, once you ask that question enough, I think you arrive at Bitcoin being like the ultimate answer. It's like, oh, central banking is the main problem in the world, you know, steals from people through inflation, uses the stolen proceeds to wage war at a scale and duration that was never before possible before the central bank. And it, and it, oh, washes the world in bullshit too, because then the central banking apparatus starts buying all the media um, apparatuses. And then you get this, 
no one believes mainstream media anymore, right? Because they're putting on a big show that's funded by all that back end. It's a bunch of deceit and inauthenticity and violence underpinning the system. And Bitcoin is just the opposite, right? It's the antithesis of that, where this system is designed to hide all of these ugly aspects of, of money and keep people confused and ignorant about how it works. Well, Bitcoin is the opposite. Bitcoin, there's nothing in there's nothing hidden in Bitcoin. And this is its big value is that it is just what you see is what you get. It's optimized for the user of money rather than the, the governor of the monetary system. And it is one of the most radical technologies for empowering individuals that there has ever been. Um, it's, it's hard to even get your head around. And, and that's indeed why we spend so many hundreds of hours talking about it from so many different angles on the show. So um, I hope that somewhat sums up what yes. my mission is. And it's, again, it's formative. It's been changing, but I'm like, if I, if I could just help people see what I think I have seen in central banking, and then also now with Bitcoin, we have a solution to this problem that's been plaguing us forever, right? You cannot find a time in human history where manipulating the money or stealing the money or debasing the money was not intertwined with human suffering and warfare and all of these things. So if you could move humanity onto a standard, a monetary standard that cannot be debased, cannot be corrupted, cannot be weaponized, how much better would that be for humanity, right? It's like, it's a step change in human civilization. So I hope to just help contribute to that in some small way. Oh man, that is awesome. And what, what, thank you for describing that so well and painting, at least in my mind, I see it like this huge ideal, right. Of a, of a transfer, like you're talking about, it's been around for, for human history. Mm. And if, if you read any history at all, like you see the evidences of that everywhere. So like my first question is like, well, how, how realistic is it for the regular guy to operate his life in Bitcoin? Well, and then we got to jump into our other cryptocurrencies, a part of that, or is it strictly Bitcoin? And, and so the ideal is awesome. And I love that. Mm -hmm. But what's the, what's the realistic approach to it? Yeah, it's, um, well, I guess we could start with what you just said there. You said an ideal, and that's really... I think that's what Bitcoin is, is that it is the ideal money, frankly. Um, indeed, you could say that every other form of money we had before Bitcoin was just an approximation. Um, and now this is a little bit a little bit more spelled out if you look at it through the lens of economic science in that one of the definitions of money, and there are many, as I've covered in the show, but one of them is money is quite simply the most marketable good. So any good that's being traded in an economy, and by the way, um, a non-tangible good is a service. So we often say goods and services, but really it's all about goods. Um, it's one way to look at it. There's another way to look at it too, but let's just say the things we're trading are goods, right? We wouldn't be doing them if they weren't. Um, Everything that we're trading has either a utility value or a marketability value. So utility would be, I'm going to use this thing to do something, right? I'm going to, even if it's uh, just a straight consumption good, like an apple, I'm going to eat the apple. That's a utility that I'm, I'm having. Or it could be something, a more sophisticated piece of capital, like an apple factory 
a piece of machinery, right? You're not going to eat the machine, but you're going to use it to produce more apples. So there's utility value in things, but there's a different kind of value called marketability. And marketability just means that other people demand this thing in the marketplace. It doesn't mean that I'm necessarily going to use it, right? Maybe I'm just holding a stockpile of whatever, diamonds, right? Maybe I don't even wear diamonds. I don't use them. I don't consume them. I don't do anything with them. But I can hold them as a form of, uh, at least a form of savings to some extent, knowing that they have some value in the marketplace. So everything's trading. Everything, every good in the economy has some component of utility value, some component of marketability value. The good with the highest ratio of marketability to utility is money. That's what gold was historically. So what does that mean though? It means that the utility value, if we just focus on gold, the utility value of gold would be the use of gold in things like computers, electronics, dental equipment, things like this, right? People using gold. The other source of demand for gold would be its marketability, its use as a store of value or as money. Now, the numbers I've heard on this is roughly is that gold has a $12 trillion market cap. Roughly $2 trillion of that is for utility or industrial use is another way to say this, wow. industrial use value. The other $10 trillion is is originated from demand for gold as a store of value or as money. Yep. So what you could say there is, okay, two out of 12, which is like what, 15% maybe of gold's market cap is related to its utility or industrial use. Yep. 85% of its value is related to its utility or its marketability demand as money. So what does that mean? That means that gold is only like 85% money. So it's an impure money, right? It's it's something that has an 85% monetary premium and then still has this other component of an of utility value or industrial use. Um, and that's the best we've had. That's the best form of money we've had. Now you could go down the list. You can go down to something like silver. I don't know the numbers on silver. Maybe it's more like 60% marketability, 40% utility, right? So it's a lesser form of money, but it's still been kind of used as money historically. There's some other technical reasons here we don't have to get into. Um, and then you keep going down the list uh, and things have more utility, less marketability, right? Until you get down to something super specific, like I assume those books or encyclopedias behind you, they have pretty specific value, right? They don't, actually maybe books might be a bad example because they do trade in the second market. Think of something like a telescope, right? People tend to want to get the telescope just so they can do something very specific. You so go, go look at the stars, whatever, but it's not like there's a huge secondary market for telescopes. You don't hold it as a store of value necessarily. Um, so all that said, Gold has been money historically because it had this highest, the highest ratio of marketability to utility, but it was impure to the tune of, like we said, 15%. Well, what is Bitcoin? Bitcoin's the first synthetic commodity that's become monetized, but it has zero industrial use. There, you can't do anything with Bitcoin. You can't eat it. You can't make apples with it. You can't, you can't repurpose it or retool it for any other um, economic aim. It's just, it doesn't do anything else. So we can say that then 100% of Bitcoin's market capitalization is demand for it as money. 
right? There is no, there is no industrial use. There is no utility value. So Bitcoin's the invention of a pure money. We've never had anything like, we've never had pure money before. You could almost call Bitcoin the invention of money, right? We've had these approximations of money across history of which gold was the best, but everything uh, was failing, right? And at least, at least to the extent of its industrial use, because that's, that makes it not useful as money. So uh, kind of a, a heady explanation there, but when you say ideal, I think that's a really resonant term. Right. It is an ideal. Um, now, how to the point, how realistic is it for the average guy? I mean, we beat this drum a lot in Bitcoin circles that you don't need to do anything with Bitcoin. I, let me back up. The first thing you should do, and this is financial advice, is to invest in yourself and your worldview. Like equip yourself with knowledge. And then based on that effort, I think your portfolio construction should ultimately reflect what you believe, right? What do you have conviction in? How do you see the world? Where do you see the world going? And the reason I say that first is because if you don't have conviction in the assets that you're holding in your portfolio, then you're fucked. Like it, Price is going to go up a lot and you're going to sell. Price is going to go down a lot and you're going to sell. Right, you're going to get shaken out no matter what if you don't know what you own, and no, like there's no you can't get past that first step if you don't understand what you own and have deep conviction in it, then you're just screwed. Even if you're right, you're going to be you're going to you're going to have a bad outcome even if you're right. So step one is equip yourself with knowledge. Step two is if you decide Bitcoin is a part of that portfolio construction based on you know your own diligence. Treat it like long-term savings. I don't think you can ever use Bitcoin for anything other than long-term savings at this stage in its monetization. Because what you have is an asset with a sub $1 trillion market cap, right? I think we're well below half a trillion today, um, competing to at least be a threat or potentially disruptor to gold, which we said has a $12 trillion market cap. So that's a 24X upside for Bitcoin if it just outcompeted gold. But further along that curve is like, because fiat currency has been implemented globally, we've seen a lot of other asset classes become monetized as stores of value. So the, the punchline here is that you can't, reliably store economic value in dollars over long periods of time, right? Five, 10, 15 years, the dollar's getting debased more and more rapidly every year. So what do you do? Well, as a savvy investor, you're forced into anything that can't be printed or debased. So we've seen the monetization of real estate, we've seen the monetization of equities, we've seen the monetization of commodities like oil and, and whatnot. So, um, as the average guy, um, I'm sorry, Bitcoin then, we've got $12 trillion market cap is kind of like first milestone for Bitcoin. Second milestone would be to start clipping off all the monetary premium that has permeated into these other asset classes, right? If the money is sound again, and I know the money will hold its value over time, well, then it makes more sense for me to hold something like Bitcoin or I've got no counterparty risk. No, I don't need anyone's promise. I don't need to depend on anyone's delivery, right? I, I'm just holding physical Bitcoin, if you will. 
makes more sense to hold that than anything else, like to hold real estate, to hold oil, et cetera, because all of these other assets, um, they're not trust minimized, right? To own real estate, even if you think you own your house, well, do you own your house? I mean, you probably have property taxes you have to pay to the government every year. Three, miss, two, miss that two, and you're in trouble. Two, three, five percent, whatever it is. If you don't pay that, then it's not yours. So you own everything else you own at the leisure of the state, other than the property you can personally hold and defend. And um, Bitcoin makes that extremely easy, right? It's just it's informational. So, so to get to your question, the average guy, what does this mean? It's like in a world that's being flooded with counterfeit money, which we're just printing more and more money. And we can get into that later if you want. The nature of inflation, as I've argued in a lot of my work, is <clears throat> mechanically indistinguishable from counterfeiting. Inflation and counterfeiting are the same thing, just depends on its legal classification, not its mechanical. So in a world where fiat currency is being produced ad infinitum, well, isn't there a whole lot of value and a money that nobody can counterfeit? Nobody can inflate. Um, it's kind of like the Bitcoin acts as this sort of velocity sink for money. And that as you're increasing the production of money, people are spending it more quickly, not evenly over time. There's times when they hoard it and times when they spend it. But eventually the monetary premium flows into the money that's the hardest, hardest to produce. That's what gold was. That's what Bitcoin is. So for the, the average guy, just treat Bitcoin as a long-term savings tool. So, you know, over four-year spans, which Bitcoin has this um, four-year halving cycle, nobody's lost money buying Bitcoin and holding it for four years. No one's ever lost money doing that. Um, in, is it in, possible? In spite of massive swings. You could... All the volatility doesn't matter. You pick any point in Bitcoins, you could pick the exact market top in 2017 and you bought it all that day. If you held it for four years, you'd be up. Yep. Um, now, I'm not past, past performance is no indi uh, indicator of future the performance future and all that. Exactly. But um, just rationally, right? You've got more and more dollars being produced. You have less and less Bitcoin being produced. Um, as inflation is is being inflicted, this is a tax on people. So people, everyone that's being affected by inflation has an incentive to escape inflation. That's what all this monetization of real estate and equities is, right? People trying to escape inflation. Exactly. Well, now for the first time in history, we have the only known asset that's totally immune to arbitrary supply supply inflation. Its supply doesn't change. You can't, no one can change it. That's the big breakthrough here that we have, you know, 21 million Bitcoin. Um, and just to finish that thought, um, that's, I mean, that, okay. So Bitcoin, the classic adage, there's two certainties in life, death and taxes. Well, this third one, 21 million, I think is a really, it's the third certainty. It's the third certainty we can all adhere to in this world. Um, you know, people may argue that it could be broken, but the past 13 years of empirical reality says it's not possible. There's every incentive in the world to break Bitcoin's supply cap or otherwise 
break its uh, network consensus. No one's figured out how to do it. Um, so through that lens, I would also encourage people to really just focus on Bitcoin. I think everything else, all the other crypto assets or the, the shit coins, as many of us endearingly call them, they're just imposters, basically. You've done a copy and paste of Bitcoin's code. So you've, you've forked the protocol layer and then you go into the marketplace and try to create a new social layer, right? You're trying to campaign and win hearts and minds on your new money to create a new social contract. And I don't, I don't see how that can ever disrupt Bitcoin because first of all, the strategy with Bitcoin is like, just hold the Bitcoin. If someone forks the chain, then you get awarded the forked tokens too. So even in the extremely unlikely event that someone forks Bitcoin and it disrupts the old Bitcoin, you just keep holding all the forked coins and you're fine. Uh, I don't think that would ever happen, but I'm just for practical purposes, I want to say that. And then in the event that they don't fork the Bitcoin chain, then how there's no way to bootstrap something. I'll put it like this. And this gets a little bit into the weeds of what is money, like the properties of money. There's five things that money needs to do. It needs to be divisible, durable, recognizable, portable, scarce. I won't go through this. I've talked about it a lot, but essentially the brilliance of Satoshi is that he has made a monetary technology that perfects all the properties of money. Bitcoin cannot be any more durable. It cannot be any more divisible. It cannot be any more recognizable, which is to say auditable. It's just information. You can't move it any faster than the speed of light. And finally, it's a hard cap of 21 million. So it's like perfected uh, monetary scarcity. What else do you need? I mean, that's that's Bitcoin has satisfied the thing, the properties that market actors have always pursued in money. It's basically perfected them for all intents and purposes, all intents and purposes from our perspective, at least. And I don't know of any other use case for other coins that, you know, there's, there's theory out there, mm -hmm. a lot of theory, but nothing has been practically proven. Um, and it appears to me, you know, after studying this space, pretty much full-time for six years, that Bitcoin may be the only real breakthrough we see. Now, we may see a lot of other interesting developments on layer two technologies, which are built on top of Bitcoin, layer two plus, two, three, four. Like we're seeing stuff with Lightning now. I think that's a big deal. We talk about uh, the possibility of decentralized identity that's also built on top of Bitcoin. There's all kinds of interesting things that can happen. But it appears to me we're going to have full consolidation at layer one. So I think it's, I think it's Bitcoin. It's just Bitcoin, wow. frankly, of all the crypto assets and then all the experimentation and, and entrepreneurship in the space, I think is going to get pushed up to layer two and above. Yeah. So I would encourage everyone to do your homework. Um, treat Bitcoin like long-term savings. You know, no one out here is telling you to go buy Bitcoin and hope it goes up so you can pay your rent next month. That would be foolish. No one can predict short-term price movements. Yep. All we can do is make uh, make predictions about the economic trajectory, right? I think they're going to keep printing more dollars. I know they're going to keep making less Bitcoin. 
I know this inflation tax hurts people. They're going to seek to escape it. Where are they going to go? They want to go into the assets that are counterparty risk minimized. Of those, Bitcoin is the best, right? You can just hold physical Bitcoin with no counterparty risk. And then finally, I would just encourage people for all those reasons to just focus on Bitcoin and not get sucked into the shitcoin casino, which could really hurt you. Yep. So two, two questions come up. Thanks for explaining that in that way. Uh, you said a couple of things that I never heard and conceptualized that way. It was awesome. But so one of the first questions is, do you foresee any viable threat like governments regulating, restricting, getting in the way, trying to undo it? I know it's been around 13 years and people have tried. Is there a legitimate viable threat? And then second question uh, is how many people can get in? If there's, if there's 21 million and it's global, how many people could actually participate? Or is this just a, is, is, it, is this an option for few people? So I'll answer the um, second question first. Again, Bitcoin has basically infinite divisibility. So right now, each Bitcoin is divisible into 100 million units called Satoshis. You can soft fork the Bitcoin protocol, which is just say it's a very easy backwards compatible change to have greater divisibility if it was ever necessary. So if we ever got into a situation where Bitcoin has consumed all the monetary premium in the world and all of a sudden, uh, hey, this you know bag of bananas over here cost me less than one sat, which one sat would be the smallest unit for Bitcoin today. The protocol can soft fork to have more, right? You could have more than 100 million sats. I don't know what they would call them at that point, subsats or whatever. So that this is an this is a a point of common confusion is people think, oh wait, there's only 21 million. So it's there's like this zero sum game to it, which there is to an extent. Like how much it seemed like much, there's a finite number. Yes, it's a hard finite number. And when you own a share of it, you own a guaranteed fixed fraction of the total money supply, right? If I own a million Bitcoin, I have a million of a possible 21 million forever. Right. That's a that's that's where it optimizes the store value is that you have a guaranteed fraction that nobody can change. But that doesn't mean that once like all the 21 million or the the number of Bitcoin that are mined today, the 19 and a half million, those are all owned by someone. They're all held by someone. But that doesn't mean that the all the people in the world that don't own Bitcoin can never get in. It's not how it works. Um and so that that's commonly conflated the the fixed supply people conflate that with a problem with divisibility and people have also conflated it the reverse they think oh well if there's infinite divisibility there's not really 21 million right it's like no that's not how it works if you cut the same pizza pie into less slices you're not making more pizza yep. you're just more finely dividing it up and and distributing it so uh i understand it can be a little bit tricky but i hope that helped at least yes, uh, frame it up. And I, you had your first question, which the first one was any, any viable threats? Like, could it could it be stopped? Because uh, from what I understand, this is a threat to fiat money and government control, and yeah. they don't want to give that stuff up either. Yeah, Bitcoin is the ultimate enemy of the state. Um, the monopolization of money has always been the first order of business for every monopoly on violence, which is the government, because to control money is to control all the things money does, right? Control people's perceptions, goal orientations, valuations, all of these things. Control their time, right? 
money is effectively, I've said this in my piece, Masters and Slaves of Money. Another definition of money is that it's just title to human time, right? Yeah. I can take money into the marketplace and I can get people to do stuff for me, like pretty much whatever I ask, right? Not, not to say anybody will do anything for money, but you'll find somebody to do the thing you want to do for a price for most things. So we're literally trading life for money, trading life for money, but yeah. you're trading life for a money that can be centrally counterfeited by a central bank. So what does that mean? You're trading your life for money that another group can acquire that money for free. So they can dilute your investment of your life energy into this money and effectively steal your time or steal your energy, your life. So very parasitic and very dangerous for the world. Um, the threat. So all that said, Bitcoin, the big threat to the state, big threat to the monopoly on money, the monopolies on money that pervade all over the world. Um, but fortunately, Bitcoin was designed to be banned. I mean, this whole thing, it's not like Satoshi just... Satoshi obviously knew the nature of the game he was playing. Right, this is also why he disappeared. You know, he took great precautions to protect his own identity. Um, I would say this also contributed, you know, his disappearance contributed to the symbolic strength of Bitcoin, right? Instead of having one individual, like, oh, that guy made it. Yep. And then you can pull out all his foibles and be like, oh, well, look what he did over here. And he's a shitty dad and he's this or whatever. Yep. You could attack, you could have this social attack vector on Bitcoin. But by Satoshi just disappearing, it's like there's no... There's no guy to attack. Out of the equation, exactly. So he becomes like this mythological godhead of Bitcoin in a way. And uh, and that's really important, I think, actually for decentralization, for the, for the mythology of Bitcoin. But the threats to Bitcoin, I mean, the greatest threat is just the state response. It's like, okay, obviously this thing's a threat to the state. State's not just going to sit idly by. What are they going to do? But that's what Bitcoin is optimized for. It's like no matter who attacks it, it's just designed to keep creating a new block of transactions every 10 minutes and adhere to that supply cap of 21 million. So, and it's just code. Everyone, like everyone that runs a node has an entire history of Bitcoin. So if you tried to stop it, you're talking about, well, first of all, what could you do? You could make mining illegal like they did in China. And that creates an exodus of miners but not completely. What it looks like it really did is changed out who was running these mining operations because there's still mining occurring in China, even though it's been made illegal. Um, another path of attack would be to just illegalize Bitcoin. But when you make, when you ban Bitcoin, you're banning information. Bitcoin is nothing more than text. This is, uh, I point people on this, there's a U.S. Circuit Court precedent with the case against PGP software in the 90s, pretty good privacy software. Court was trying to classify PGP software as munitions and restrict its exportation from the United States. And the case takes a pretty stark turn when um, the defendants of PGP just printed out the source code and presented it as evidence. And said, this is PGP software. How can this be classified as munitions? And immediately in, in that presentational format, 
PGP was classified as protected under the First Amendment because it's just speech. You can't you can't make information illegal. Otherwise, you get these really bizarre things. Like all of a sudden, a T-shirt could be illegal because it has a certain symbol or letter on it. Numbers can become illegal. Uh, you know, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't jive with free speech, which is kind of like the central pillar of Western civilization. Um, and then I guess that, you know, the, the most significant credible threat to Bitcoin, in my opinion, is a black swan, which is to say an unknown unknown. This could be a failure, some technical failure at the protocol layer, some environmental or cosmological disaster that just wipes out, you know, um, digital technology, you know, for a greater or shorter period. Maybe this is uh, a breakdown and elliptic curve cryptography, you know, something that, that secures Bitcoin technically. But to say that is to say, is another <laughs> way of saying I have a really <laughs> high conviction in the asset because like, if I've looked at how do you stop this thing from any number of ways and the best answer I can come up with is an unknown unknown. Well, that, that is the same thing as saying I have a very high investment conviction in this asset. So, um, yeah, don't don't be fooled by the belief that many people are many people trip up on that you could simply a legislator could just with a strike of a pen outlaw Bitcoin. People don't follow the law, people follow incentives. Right. So that's the proper level of analysis from which you have to evaluate Bitcoin. Wow. Man, a lot to chew on and, and think about here. So, okay, so then now, that being said, and kind of seeing the big macro level picture of it, and, and with your perspective, Bitcoin as a long term, what's, what are your thoughts about strategies for the short term, uh, particularly with inflation coming in? Have, have you read um, Ray Dalio's new book about the changing world order or heard him talk about that? I've only read principles, but I'm okay. somewhat familiar with his work. Okay. Yeah. So, so he's just like, Hey, look, he, he's this big macro level thing about the changing of, of world orders and major mm-hmm. economies. And he says there's a shift right now, particularly the United States losing power and China gaining power. Mm-hmm. And it seems like, and if you're familiar with the fourth turning um, and, and all that, right, there's, we're going into this really unique time right now in mm-hmm. the history of the world and in economies. And there's people are saying, and, and I agree, I think we're in, in a bit of a social and economic winter. So Bitcoin, as I hear you saying, is, is a good long-term strategy. What about short-term strategies? What about, what about approaching what's coming right now or what we're in? It's a, it's a good question. One um, book I would add to the collection you just said is The Sovereign Individual. I, I mentioned this in a lot of my media appearances, but I think it is one of the best books at framing what we're going through today. This book was written in 1997. It's got two authors. It's made a number of successful predictions, such as uh, the rise of social media. Uh, It predicted the emergence of something like Bitcoin. I think it called it anonymous digital cyber cash. Um, It predicted the use of a pandemic by governments once once, um, the realization that digital technology posed an existential threat to the government was, once that realization was had by governments 
that they would start to try to flex to create um to reinforce the validity of borders let's say through something like a pandemic again all of this was written about 1997 in this book and a lot of it has come to pass um and i think that's it also one of the core pieces of the thesis in that book is that once people have an option if i have the option to hold money that someone can arbitrarily inflate or the option to hold money that nobody can arbitrarily inflate the answer is so obvious what i'm going to hold that it's it's dumbfounding right like you'll once you understand money significantly and you don't need to understand it here's the funny thing is like so we're trying this one approach where I educate people. I talk about this. I actually think this is the least effective approach. It's the best one I've got. The most effective approach is to just go live in one of these fucking regimes. Go live in Venezuela or live in Argentina or live in a country. Yes, people learn most effectively through pain. Yep. So I'm not making the case here that the whole world needs to become a scholar of monetary history. And then they're going to say, aha, it's all Bitcoin. Just let the governments keep doing what they've always been doing and people will find their way to Bitcoin because they're going to be, they're being victimized in these currency regimes. So anyways, the core thesis, a core component of the thesis in this book is that once non-state uninflatable digital cash becomes an option, that it's just a matter of time for the nation state collapses (laughs) because right now they generate a significant amount of the revenues by printing money which is to say stealing from people by inflation. So if we just looked at the U.S., which uh, is less inflationary actually than many other regimes in the world, the past, I think this is 2021, could have been 2020, the United States collected $4 trillion in direct tax receipts and printed $4 trillion. I think this is 2020 actually. So roughly the revenue mix of the U.S. government is 50% inflation, 50% taxation. And now you could argue, oh, this is, you know, abnormal time in 2020 and whatnot, but we'll see. What typically happens is the more money governments print, the more money they have to print to keep the entire Ponzi scheme going, basically. So I don't think it's going to slow down, although that, that argument could be made. If you assume then that citizens now have this option to uninflatable money and that eventually they're all going to take it either, you know, either you're going to figure it out cognitively and get ahead of the curve, or you're going to experience the pain and get forced into it at some point. What does that mean for the nation state? 50% of the revenues go away. Inflation goes away as a revenue option. So now the United States that had $8 trillion in revenue, all of a sudden goes down to four. This is half of it. So what does that mean for the state? I mean, the state necessarily shrinks and and fragments and maybe even dissolves, you know, at, at least the nation state. I think what happens in the wake of Bitcoin success is that you're just going to see smaller, more competitive states that are more accountable to the preferences of citizens, right? Because people can vote with their feet. People can leave. People can exit the currency regime. As in, and are you referring to like physical states united states in the united States, or groups of people individuals or different sovereign entities and groups well i mean that's love. the funny question is like where do we draw the lines literally where do we draw the lines right. right we right now we have this big imaginary line in this part of north america and we call it the united states well 
what happens if the people in Texas, they're generating a, a tax surplus, they've got a ton of energy wealth, they like to mine Bitcoin. What do they say? Fuck this New York and California ESG nonsense. Yeah. We're our own state now. Yeah. They have every incentive to do it. It would be beneficial for them and their people. So my point is that that's what I was trying to say earlier is that people follow incentives, not laws. It doesn't matter if there's some federal law that says Texas can't leave the union. Like if Texas decides they're going to leave, then they'll leave. Right. And uh, so the strategy for the the simple guy, the simple investment strategy, and this, you asked short term, long term. I'll just tell you what I'm doing, and uh, you know, Perfect. apply it to your life as you see fit. But I think that, and again, studying things like the YMR hyperinflation, I think help a lot. That you see how crazy things get and how volatile things get. Things get more volatile. It's not like. One day the dollar, you know, one day a loaf of bread is five dollars, the next day it's 50, the next day it's five thousand. It's not this linear process of just the money going away. Money will go way up in purchasing power, and then it'll come way down in purchasing power, and it'll come way up and way down. These shocks get more and more volatile until the currency ultimately collapses. So my brother was living in Buenos Aires when it happened in Argentina. He was hmm. there and it just came undone. It was yeah. wild. And that is unfortunately a norm of human history that current that currencies collapse, right? Um, politically managed currencies collapse, I'll say. So going into that, I very simply, and it takes a long time, I guess, to get to this, this um, investment strategy. And it's so simple that it's hard for people to accept that this is all you have to do. People, we have this, you know, a lot of humans have this feeling like we need to do more, right? We need to be taking more action to outperform. But I mean, in markets, I think the people that do that typically underperform, right? The more you move, the more you underperform, unless you're one of these few, you know, super uh, savvy traders or hedge fund managers that can just always outperform the market. And in that case, you're like 0.01% of the world. Right. Anyways, with Bitcoin, I just buy it every day. The automatic recurring buy, which is called dollar cost averaging. Yep. That's buying a fixed amount of Bitcoin every single day. Um, I use Swan. So they, you automatically buy it. And then when it hits a certain threshold, it automatically withdraws it to your cold storage. I also make more than I spend. So I run a profitable business. I have income. I hold in the current environment, I'm holding some of those dollars that come, come in. And then I'll deploy them opportunistically to do big Bitcoin buys. So big one-time buys over-the-counter trades for Bitcoin. And so- I was expecting you to say, get real estate deals right there. No, oh, just Bitcoin. So, um, so I'm buying more Bitcoin every single day. This, this makes the volatility work in my favor because every, no, matter what, no matter what's happening with Bitcoin, I'm acquiring it every single day, which I think I plan on doing forever, basically. And then the second leg of the strategy where you're going to opportunistically buy Bitcoin when the price dips lets you further take advantage of the volatility, right? So like the past several months, Bitcoin has come down significantly. Yep. I was buying Bitcoin at 19,000 a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, it was 
70,000, what, six, eight months ago, right. maybe 10 months ago. So, and then the fa- the final piece to that is to always custody your own Bitcoin. You have to take custody of your own keys. Ooh. If you leave your private keys with a custodian of any kind, I don't care if it's Coinbase, I don't care if it's the biggest US regulated custodian in the world, you have counterparty risk, right? It, and doesn't have to be that counterparty falling apart necessarily. It could be the US government coming in and saying, all your fucking Bitcoin is now ours, Coinbase. So your 100 million whatever customers just get the shaft. And that's that. You can realize the full value proposition of Bitcoin only when you have it in self-custody. Only when you have it in self-custody. Otherwise, you have counterparty risk. And that defeats the whole point. Now, self-custody can be scary for people because no one wants to lose their keys because that's the whole game. There's no Bitcoin HQ you can call and get them to reset your password. So the mode of self-custody that I recommend is multi-signature. And you can set this up with a, there's a company named Casa in the US. There's also a company named Unchained Capital that provides a multi-sig vault. And this just lets you take self-custody in a way that has redundancy. So if you lose one of the keys, you have backups. Um, And so that's it. It's really, it's maybe sounds like more complicated than it is, but Automatic buy Bitcoin every day, buy more Bitcoin when the price dips, put it all in self-custody, hold it forever. And that strategy, show me an investment strategy that outperforms that over a four-year period. Doesn't exist. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. And, And thank you for walking specifically and strategically through that. Mm. That's yeah <laughs> it's um and it's you know it's it's the product of pain i would say too I'm, i've learned through the pain just like other people trying sure. to get fancy and you know i ran a fund for a while we traded options on bitcoin sometimes we're up sometimes we're down and it's really hard yeah. and i tried really hard and it was still hard to consistently outperform so for most people i think it's very easy Let's say it's simple, maybe not easy to accept, but this very simple strategy will keep you ahead of basically everyone. Um, Let's say 99% of all the investment funds in the world. And if you listen to that strategy, there's nothing to it. Like once I said it and forget it, super simple. Once I decide to buy Bitcoin, I send one email to buy the Bitcoin. It all goes to cold storage automatically. I don't do anything. I have all the freedom in the world. And all my wealth is preserved in an asset that's immune to the opinions of everyone, every regulator, every state, every individual, no one can, no one's opinion can change my position on the Bitcoin network. So I have this like ultimate peace of mind and, and freedom. Super awesome. Super awesome. Okay. Let's, let's kind of jump over to like a survival side. What about like tangible physical assets? Because I know you have an interest in the the survival side of things too, and mm. and and being able to just be an all around uh, well skilled, well developed person. Mm. What about that side of it? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's funny when you. <laughs> Let's just say this: I used to own a lot more things before I got into Bitcoin. And then the deeper you get into Bitcoin, it changes you a lot. 
Um, one of the ways, you know, I mentioned to you, I've been traveling for a couple of years. We've been just trying to like figure out where to be. And I've got a young daughter and just figuring some stuff out. But in that process, I guess in preparation for that process, I shedded a lot of my possessions. I'm just like, what is, I don't, I don't need this stuff. So I'm either going to sell it or junk it, whatever it is. We went through that journey. Awesome experience. Yeah. It's very, there's a, I forget where I read this, but um, there's an energetic connection between you and each of your possessions so that if you possess too many possessions, they can start to possess you. So when you start to shed those property relationships, you get more of your energy back and um, so true, less distracting, you know, less things to think about. And you could just point your mind and, and body in the direction you want. So I don't own much these days. I basically own dollars and I own Bitcoin and I own some, some business interest, you know, that, that I'm involved with not publicly traded stocks. I've divested all of that. Um, pretty much all the fancy financial instruments I used to trade. I avoid all that now. Um, and I, you know, we rent what we live in and we, uh, lease cars. I've sold my cars too. I don't own them anymore. And, um, I try to get, I own a lot of books. I guess that's one thing I do have a shitload of is same book book (laughs) i can see behind you you've got the same situation um and that's really it i try it's given me a lot of freedom to just focus on doing what i want to do every day which is i like to read so i try to read a lot every day i try to write every day i try to play every day i have some fun I try to do something physically active. I like to work out kind of sadistically in a way. I really get into it. (laughs) Go to the edge of the threshold of all bearable pain and let it, you know, just sit with it for a little while. Um, And then what? Oh, I like, you know, I record. I tend to record about five days a week too. So, or um, as in for the show, for the what okay, is money yep, show. Yep, yep, yep. Yep. And you, man, you're, you're talking to people all the time. You're doing videos, you're doing interviews, you're all over the place. Yeah. I, you know, I'm trying to do the right amount of it. Like I try not to do any more than two of these shows roughly per month, but for the, my show, I'm recording a lot for that one. I'm talking to people, Fantastic. like I said, four or five times a week, typically Fantastic. for two to three hours a day. And then, um, yeah, I feel really great about life. I mean, I'm doing all the things I love to do. Um, I ha- I enjoy this really modern luxury of being able to do it from pretty much anywhere with an internet connection, yep. which is, you know, man, we got to be grateful for that at least. Yeah. Like our generation, as many things we have going on, we do have this especially post COVID, right? Where people now are working remotely in droves, but a lot of people have this capacity for self-direction and freedom that just wasn't really a a possibility before in a world where you had to live in a city and go into an office and all of that. Um, Oh, amen to that. We've taken our family. We've been in almost close to 40 countries now because of that thing, just this freedom to wander and see the world and, and work. Yeah. Where there's internet. Yeah. Awesome. 
Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. I love it. All right. So that was cool. That was actually one of the things I wanted to ask you is like, what's working for you as a man? And you already hit it. It's reading. And I want to talk about that for a second. Your yeah. exercise, writing. Are you writing a book or are you writing just a flow in journals or do you have an output there? So yeah, what are you, yeah. What are you reading? What do you recommend? And what are you writing? Well, the reading, my another thing about getting into Bitcoin, especially if you get involved with Bitcoiners on Bitcoin Twitter, everyone likes to argue, everyone's smart, everyone's well-read. So your reading list just explodes. Like my reading list is outrunning everything else in my life. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I'm just trying to keep up basically. You know, I'm trying to get in one to three hours of reading per day to keep chopping down that tree that keeps growing too fast. Um, the writing I write, I published to my Substack, which is titled the freedom Analex. Um, this is all going towards a book. I do intend to ultimately just kind of compile everything into a book. I'm not writing chapters to the book per se on Substack, but I think when I actually sit down to to write this book, it's going to be pulling in a lot of the things I've learned. So a lot of the conversations I've had, a lot of the things I've written and I'll try to, I want to tell a story, really the story of humans relationship with money, right. And how much it, it determines how we are, how we act with one another and how sustainable our civilization is. Um, as far as, and then, yeah, you mentioned the fitness thing that, that's a real important component of my life. And I just, I grew up as an athlete. I did competitive Olympic lifting. I played football. I was a boxer for a couple of years. I did wrestling. So I think that, man, you really need something like that in your younger years to just learn how to handle yourself, frankly, and how to handle challenges, how to learn about goal setting, learning about imagination and visualization at least in my sport olympic lifting like we just practice this lifting technique all the time all the time it was just it was such a boot camp on body control and mind control control. you know being fast and like confident i don't know it's it's really important i'm not saying everyone needs to do olympic weightlifting but you need something like that maybe something like piano and musical instruments, these other, other forms of training and competition, you just need it. I think to get really dialed in as a human, as this applies to men and women, I I would say. Um, and yeah, I think you asked about my reading list. What am I reading? It's it's currently, (laughs) yeah, it's, I've been reading a lot lately, man. So awesome. One of the other benefits for the, the show that makes it kind of a dream job for me is I get to have really interesting conversations with people that I want to have a conversation with about topics that I'm interested in learning more about. Right. So I did a series two weeks ago, for instance, with John Verveke, who's a, uh, he's a clinical psychologist out of the university of Toronto. He's a um, colleague of Peterson's Yep. super super brilliant guy very interesting to to listen to but he recommended a number of books on neoplatonic philosophy and and not just neoplatonic philosophy but um that was kind of the central pillar and a couple of books around that but i read a book three books actually we discussed one of them plato's critique of impure reason by schindler 
incredible book. Um, a book titled Theophany by, I think it's Eric Pearl. Phenomenal book. And then I read this book, The Courage to Be by Paul Tillich. Also really good. Um, all pretty hard books, to be honest. But um, the type of reading you walk away from just with an enriched worldview and then also like a deeper humility, like the realization of how little you really do know. Yes, exactly. Um, and that feeling for me of like enriching my worldview, but also not that you want to realize, you know, way less than you thought you knew, but that seems to kind of go hand in hand with this enriching your worldview. Um, that's what I, that's what I aim at. And that seems to be, contributory to masculine self-development like you need to just you get a better grip on the world right and the humility helps you too and that because man we're all fucking up every day all the time if you're not adapting to those fuck-ups and like you know letting them process through you and taking the lessons from it if you're doubling down tripling down quadrupling down and not willing to admit mistakes because of a, due to a lack of humility, well, you're screwed yep, you're and you're, good. and you're, it's worse, the faster the world's changing because the faster the world's changing, the more mistakes you're going to make, exactly. the more misconceptions you're going to have, the more mental models you're going to need to reconstruct. So if you're not, if you don't have the adequate humility to engage in those processes, then I just think you're out of luck in the modern world. Yep. You will be so screwed. That's it. That's a great point. Mm-hmm. Love that brother. This has been a perfect. It was a perfect flow from, money and and being a man and and what's working um let's any last thought or piece of advice for men specifically anything else you say hey you got you got the attention of a a a group of men any last last piece of advice in in any aspect in life business money anything else you want to share that we haven't touched yet um you know, I hope to, I've been, I've had a lot of personal trials and tribulations in life, as I think we all have. Um, another interesting thing about Bitcoin is that people that get really into it, and when I say, it's kind of weird when you say into Bitcoin, people are like, how many things can you know about Bitcoin? But it's like, it's not, again, what was I, what did I just say? I was reading a book last week about Neoplatonic philosophy and this, and like none of those things are about Bitcoin, but I got into those topics through the intellectual rabbit hole that Bitcoin presents to you. And so I, I guess the theme in that journey into the Bitcoin rabbit hole is you're trying to have a more proper relationship with the truth, right? You're trying to be more honest with yourself. You're trying to call yourself on your own bullshit you're trying to see through the bullshit of others. You're trying, you're trying to orient yourself closer to truth. And I think there's, it's a real metaphysical thing because we don't know why it's like that, but it seems like Bitcoin is something very pure. It's very honest. There's nothing hidden. Like again, it's the opposite of this opaque financial system. It's this universally transparent financial system that seems to inspire commensurate changes in people that get close to it. So I say all that to say, I hope in the years ahead of my work to start 
talking about some of the dark things I've been through to like really dig into things that I'm not comfortable talking about and like bring them up to the surface and share them with other men. And it's to even talk about it like this, I get nervous. I'm like, Oh God, I got to talk about some weird (laughs) shit. I don't know if I'm ready for it, but I hope that in that digging into the truth of who I am and what I've been through and how it's changed me and led to my growth and development. If I can share those stories with other men that they'll find value in that. Because I think, I mean, this is how, again, how I felt like some of the things I went through, I like think I'm alone in the world, right? This is a weird thing about me or about the situation. And you can't really talk to anyone about it. So you have this like whole, whatever, you're just like dealing with it on on an Island basically. But my, again, one of the things I've learned throughout this process, there's no one on an Island. Like if you're dealing with something, someone else has dealt with it. Exactly. It's someone like maybe only one person, but there's someone out there and there's someone out there that would receive value from your courage to step up to the plate and share it and talk about it. So, um, I don't know if that's great advice for the audience, but it's just something I felt compelled to say that I intend to do that. Beautiful. But it's again, going to be really hard and going to take me some time to do it. I think, um, I would invite others to maybe consider doing the same thing. I think there's a lot of value and maybe this is something men can learn from women. I think women probably do this a lot better than we do. Better, I agreed. They talk about all the weird, you know, shit that they deal with. And then they get support. Yeah. And they get support and they process their, you know, women are much more emotional and we call them crazy. I would say feminine energy more generally. Right. But they do process their emotions better than men. Men just seem to stick them in a bottle and soldier on forever. <laughs> exactly. We hide in our cave thinking I'm the only one that's ever experienced this. Yes. And that hiding it in the cave that. is not good for you, yep. right? It, it's bad for you physically. It can be physically bad for you. Exactly. So I guess in going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, I've identified this need to have a better relationship with truth. Yes. And the a high, a really high, scary expression of that would be for me to dig into the, the darkness of myself and share it with others. Right. And I would just invite others to consider doing that as well. Yeah, exactly. And as we pursue truth, it forces us to have a better relationship with ourselves and then with the people yes. around us in the outer world. And that dimension of reality is so real. The whole moral, metaphysical dimension, like... Yep. You know, I grew up reading a lot of books that were super scientific and rationalist, materialist, reductionist, didn't believe in any of that. But um, my eyes have been opened. There are two sides to the coin, so yes. to speak. And the metaphysical world is amazing. Yes. I've been studying that more and more the last few years as well. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome, brother. Thanks for sharing that, man. That was, it's that heartfelt personal journey with truth. All right, man. Yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, go ahead. It's there for all of us. You know, yep. the journey is available to all of us at any time. Yeah. I love that. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to put a bunch of stuff links in the show notes here, but where, where can people find your content, your material, where can they connect with you and, and find your stuff? Yeah. Easiest place to find me is on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at breedlove 22. That's my last name. B R E E D L O V E two, two. 
Um, I've got a link to my link tree on my bio, which I usually update with links of things I'm working on. Um, and you could also check out the show on whatismoneypodcast.com. And we're also on YouTube. Um, and yeah, feel free to engage. I, I consider this to be my life's work. I'm hoping to just keep deepening my relationship with truth and see how far it goes. Love it. And thanks, man. Thanks for the, for your time today and sharing this and, and for this. Well, again, I see it as a mission and this message that you're sharing. That's it, it's, it's bringing this awareness to the people. Oh, I was going to mention this earlier. I did a little research earlier this week to just a percentages of people that understand Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. It's mm-hmm. tiny still. Mm-hmm. Just a tiny percent of people are even wrapping their heads around this. And so the message matters. Jake. Message matters. And man, it's a lot to get your head around. Uh, I wish I could tell you I understood Bitcoin. I was just, just working on it every day. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. Thanks, brother. Good having you on here, man. Thanks, Greg. Gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed this episode and got a lot out of it. I know I did. Um, at, a, at a minimum, let's spend some time thinking deeply about money and our relationship to money and how money is affecting our lives and how we can adjust that, how we can uh, pivot and move, with, increase our awareness and understanding around money and around Bitcoin and around wealth creation, especially in, in this unique time that we're going into, this uh, you know an economic winter and a social winter and the changing world order like we mentioned in there and the fourth turning and all those things and really educate yourselves and get out, uh, lay out a, a clear plan for how you want to prepare yourself and your family for the future. As always, uh, be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Um, share this episode if you found it uh, valuable for you. Share it with friends and, and families, colleagues who you know would uh, value, find some value and appreciate understanding this. And for, for the most part, fellas, this is most important. Don't just do nothing, right? I know that's a double negative, but we often listen to things, hear things, big ideas that can introduce you know new thinking in new ways, and then we, we get busy and we kind of set it aside or procrastinate, and then we end up doing nothing. So don't do that. Make sure you take action on something and just pick one thing. Pick one thing today that you're going to do around money or, or manliness or your habits or your lifestyle, your philosophies, or just even if it's just increasing your awareness and understanding education around money. Thanks for listening, fellas. Be the man.